There's another podcast you should be listening to, TED Health, a podcast from the TED Audio Collective. Join host Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter as she introduces you to leading health experts and breaks down the health questions you didn't know you had. Learn more about the way your body works and the newest insights changing the medical world, like what a smart bra means for better heart health, three ways to prepare for the next pandemic, and how we can all live healthier lives. Find TED Health wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about the conversation that we're going to get into because we, we definitely have never touched on this. I don't think with a guest, we may have like glossed over it. We've touched on it. I think we've speculated on it. (laughs) There's been, there's been a fuckload Uh, of speculation. I think we've speculated. That's for sure. Uh, But I feel like we've talked about it like on a Feel Good Friday episode maybe, or, or something of the sort. Yeah, yeah, but 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 uh, quite a long time ago. Yeah, because because I I remember talking about it, but being fairly murky. Yes, on exactly what it is. Yeah, well, I think what, the listeners are also fairly murky on what it is because we haven't said it. Yeah, that's right. We're keeping it. But maybe they've read the title. (laughs) Thank fuck we're with Andrea today because Andrea's going (laughs) to set the record straight. Uh, We're talking about we're talking about Munchausen by proxy, Um, which which I'm 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 excited to have you, Andrea, on the show, because um, I feel like if someone had had said that word to me, I would have a vague recollection of what it is. But I feel like I'd probably fuck it up and, and say the wrong thing. And one of the interesting things that I, I have here in front of me is our, you know, we, we've got a bunch of show notes. And one of the things that you have kind of posed as a question to us is, is Munchausen by proxy a mental illness or a crime? And that's something that I really want to kind of dive into. So before we get into the thick of it, Andrea, first of all, thank you. Welcome to the show. Uh, take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners. Who is Andrea Dunlop? Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm Andrea Dunlop. I am the author of four novels. Um, My new novel is called Women Are the Fiercest Creatures. That is a uh, story of a tech guy who's taking his company public and the women that he sort of screwed over in his past. Uh, His past comes back to haunt him at the worst possible moment. Um, So that is my new novel. Um, I am also the host and creator of the podcast, Nobody Should Believe Me, which explores uh, Munchausen by proxy, as you mentioned. Um, I am also a member of the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children's Munchausen by Proxy Committee with a whole bunch of incredible experts, uh, several of whom I interview on the show. And I am the founder of Munchausen Support, which is an online resource and also um, a 501c3 that helps with professional trainings and survivor support in a bunch of different ways. So So, so needless to say, Munchausen (laughs) Munchausen by Proxy plays a big role in your life, obviously. Yeah, it has over the last few years become a big part of my professional life. It started really with this, um, with the, with my last book, which was called We Came Here to Forget. That was 
partly inspired by my own family's story. So that led to me doing some interviews about the topic and talking about it publicly for the first time. And then that lead, led me to meet Dr. Mark Feldman, who's one of the just most amazing experts. He's like one of the most well-respected experts in the country on this topic. He's been working on it for like 40 years and he's a member of this committee that I'm now on. So really meeting him was kind of the start of everything. But then mm. I started meeting all of these professionals who who were working on it and just really wanted to figure out a way that I could use my skill set as a, you know, sort of communications person, you know, being a podcaster and and a storyteller as a novelist to to help sort of increase public awareness and just really make all of that incredible academic work that the committee is doing mm. accessible to everyone. Amazing. So what, what is your, what, what is your relationship to Munchausen and um, Munchausen by proxy? And, and if we can get like a, um, Wait, is it is it is it wrong to just say Munchausen? Well, I don't, well, I, don't yeah, I, right. I, I don't I don't know. Like, what is what <laughs> what, what, is what delineates it? Munchausen? You got to keep the proxy. Yeah, because I mean, I feel I feel like there's got to be a difference, or else they would just right. they wouldn't say by proxy. That's right. right? There's, there, there, yeah. What does it mean? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I will say a lot of people do shorten it and say sort of a Munchausen survivor or a Munchausen victim, and what we mean when we say that is. Munchausen by proxy. Um, but there is, I mean, the terminology, I will try and keep this very short because the terminology debate is is vast. Mm. Um, but the but yes, Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy, they are both what's called factitious disorders. So this is sort of in the psychiatry realm, um, but they are separate. So Munchausen syndrome is when someone induces, exaggerates, or invents illnesses in themselves for the purpose of sympathy and attention. And Munchausen uh. by proxy is when they do it to someone in their care for those same psychological rewards. Um, so that is kind of, those are our working definitions of those two things. But yes, because they're long, unwieldy terms and the actual technical terms for them are factitious disorder and factitious disorder imposed on another. So those are no less unwieldy. So wow. um, and we, we use MBP a lot. Um, that's as a way to shorten Munchausen. So, is, so, is, so right. like would that. Munchausen then be like, so say I was um, inventing and like told, was telling people that I have cancer and that I'm terminal, I'm, I'm going to die. That would be Munchausen. If I told people that my mom had terminal cancer and that wasn't true, then that would be Munchausen by proxy. Yes, exactly. Okay. And there's there's also um, there's another term that I'm going to throw in the mix, not to add confusion, but because I think this separation is really important. Um, the factitious disorders, those two that I mentioned, those are really thought to be the primary motivation is for that attention and sympathy. If people are pretending they're ill or pretending their child is ill. I say child because mo the vast majority, like 96% of Munchausen by proxy offenders are women with mm. children. Mm. Um, so if someone is pretending their child is ill to get out of work, to get out of military service, to mm. get money, if they're doing like just fake fundraising, um, and that is the only motivation, then that's something called malingering. So that's sort of a separate bucket okay. of things. Now, yeah. there is often financial fraud in these cases, but if someone is doing it also sort of in the absence of any kind of material reward, then that is that's sort of what fits into those disorders. Okay. I, I have one more question, and, and this one, this might be a silly, kind of a dumb question, but... Um, who was Munchausen? This is your last question. <laughs> Let, let's, go to Brian, let's go to Brian's example where he's, he's saying, um, so, so we got Munchausen, that's Brian's pr pretending he has, he's got cancer. Uh, we've got Brian pretending that, telling people that his mother is sick, right? And that's Munchausen by proxy. 
Now, does uh, how does it does his mother have to have some semblance of belief in what Brian is saying for this to be yeah. considered Munchausen by proxy? I think the only so the only way that that example would really work is if Brian's mother was a vulnerable adult. Sure, so where you sure. see perpetrators perpetrating on other adults is when you have someone living with an older sick relative and, um, you know, or a disabled relative or something like that. So that's, those are the cases of sort of adult Munchausen by proxy. And we don't see them as much. Um, Mostly again, we see small children. So obviously children make the, you know, are are the most vulnerable victims because they're going to completely believe their parents' version of events. Right. Right, So, you know, I have two small children, like their reality is so shaped by in particular mothers because, you know, mothers are, do the majority of the caretaking. My 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 household is more equal than most, but you know, in our society, mothers are most often people that are going to be taking care of children, especially taking them to the doctor. So, I mean, as a child, you're going to believe whatever that person is saying. When we see Munchausen by proxy with adult victims, and again, it's usually like an older parent or sometimes a spouse. A lot of times, you're seeing that in the sort of inducing realm. So you see actual poisoning and that right. kind of thing. So oh, yeah, right, they are right, right. making a person sick because yeah. it's it would be much harder, obviously, to convince the, uh, an adult to go along with that if they, mm. you know, to to go along with the whole idea that they're sick and convince them they're sick. It's much harder than with a child. Ooh. So often, the cases I've heard about are like poisoning or some other kind of actual physical interference. Is is that inducing? And and just to highlight too, like you're saying you know, 96% are, is in children, but in that like 4% um, is inducing, like if you're actually poisoning them in that situation, is that still Munchausen by proxy? Oh yes. Yeah. So, I mean, if it's, if it's not, obviously there are cases where if someone is just poisoning someone to try and kill them for other reasons um, to be sort of graphic, but yeah, I mean the, the whole, if it plays into that pattern of making someone ill to make you as the caretaker, to get you sort of sympathy and attention and like, aren't I being heroic sort of taking care of this elderly patient and like that kind of thing. So it really is, you know, it's sort of classified by number one, intentional deception. I always want to make that really clear to people that this is not someone who's having delusions that they're sick or delusions that their child or relative is sick. Um, they are not confused about it. Um, oh, okay. They are intentionally lying for the purposes of attention. So you do see other people sort of over-medicalizing their children for other reasons or because they're, you know, because they're having delusions or because they're just a super anxious parent. And that is not in the same category as this. This is categorized by looking for a pattern of intentionally lying or inducing illness in your child or exaggerating symptoms um, or giving them medicine to produce something that looks like symptoms. It's really a side effect. I'm, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you said that. Cause I was um, a question that I, that I had for you was, um, was pretty much exactly that. I had a, I had an experience where I, where I was, I broke a bunch of bones and I was um, had like a quite a long um, recovery process and I remember, I can't remember if it was a physician or if it was a, uh, if it was a psychologist who, who actually pointed out to me to try and be aware uh, if, I am, if I am actually better than I think I am because I've been being taken care of for so long by my wife. At the, uh, I was going to say my wife at the time. Still my wife. Um, <laughs> that I was being taken care of for so long that... I sh- I should be weary of whether I am subconsciously continuing um, that 
like the behavior of needing care because being cared for is so um, is something that we sort of like yearn for on a psychological, oh, like dude, subconscious. That's level. like when when like I have a bad cold and I'm on like day five or six and I'm starting to feel better, but my girlfriend's been taking care of me. I'm like, ah, man, like I could maybe just milk this for one more day. It would be nice. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, yeah. that's intentional, and and you're committing uh, crime. psychological crime. That's crime. Right. Um, I, I, but I, I'm glad that you said I that because I, I was guys. I'm <laughs> just saying that the could, thought crosses. No, but you because. know what? I'm actually I'm Brian and Taylor. That is such a good example. I'm. So so glad you brought that up because I think one of the things that does a real disservice to this issue is when we just make it, and a lot of the media coverage does this and it drives me nuts, but when we make the, again, I say women because that's most of the offenders that we know about. When we make these offenders into just monsters and this coverage is so sort of um, sensationalized and it just fixates on all the gnarly medical details, there is a piece of this especially I think when you talk about those Munchausen behaviors of pretending that you are ill or making yourself ill, there is a part of this where we can kind of bring it down to earth to a behavior that we can all relate with, right? And that's exactly what you said of being sick and being taken care of. That is a natural human thing. We all do it when we're children. We all, you know, do it to some degree as adults, right? Like everyone out there who happens to be married to a man probably recognizes, um, you know, not my dear husband, of course, but like, you know, um, the sort of playing out playing up a little bit of, you know, a little bit of symptoms and tummy aches are no joke. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so I think like, I think that is a really, and especially if you've, you know, struggled with a chronic illness or something, I mean, the, the psychological interplay is complicated. Right. Yeah, and so yeah. I think like, it's worth recognizing that this is, this is an extreme of a natural human behavior. It's not mm -hmm. something that's just totally un, unrecognizable. It's, it's sort of something that we all have, but we, and we don't know a lot about sort of the, what goes on in people's brains to make them do this or why they start these behaviors. We just know kind of right. more about the actual pattern of behavior. But I think what, um, I mean, I think what you sort of look for is, and it is, it's extremes, right? It's not, pretending to be sick or prolonging, you know, your recovery from something. And it's like, it's, it's an extreme of it. So when we're talking about Munchausen behaviors, um, like, you know, in my case with my sister, you know, the big thing was a fake pregnancy with twins that she said she lost about six months in. And it was a very dramatic thing. Mm. And there was ultrasound pictures and there was all these stories and, and like, it's something like that, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of characterized by these elaborate things or the Hopi Barra story that we talk about in the podcast where she had an entire, you know, nine or eight year long cancer hoax where she convinced everyone she was dying. And she, I mean, it's, it's these very elaborate, it, it really is characterized, I think by extremes. Mm. And I think that's a good way to think of it. But I, I always mm. like it when people, sort of bring that example of like, you know, when you pretend to be sick as a kid, because I think it's, it, we really need to humanize everyone in these stories to have a better understanding of it. Mm. And I so think, is that your, is that your, that's, that's your, um, that's your personal connection there is an experience with your, is an experience with your sister. Yeah. So my personal connection. Um, so yes, my sister had had some of these health behaviors before she had children. And then um, she has been investigated for much as by proxy or medical child abuse um, on two occasions. I should note that she has not been charged with a crime, but that uh, that first investigation, um, because my mother was the one who reported uh, concerns to the doctor and we were all really concerned in my family, she really cut us out of her life and cut us out of her children's lives. So that mm. has been, you know, that was that was a, 
almost 12 years ago now. Um, so, and then the, the most recent investigation wrapped up in, or they ended up not filing charges and that mm-hmm. happened two years into the criminal investigation in 2020. So that's a bit more recent. That's with her younger daughter. I, so um, yes. So that's my history with it. Yeah. I, so like, like in, in that example, uh, or, or, you know, maybe not specifically your sister's example, but examples like that, where you have an adult who is making the decision to, um, to like commit this harm to a child through Munchausen behaviors. Like, and I know you said that, that in the literature, there's not like a, there's not a whole lot to say as to why people do this, but do you have any kind of like, you know, speculation as to like where this is coming from or what the, like, is there something beyond just, I want to receive attention from people and, and receive, um, you know, feelings of, of like pity from people or, or like, you know, what's the, what's at the root cause here? What the fuck's going on? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so what Dr. Mark Feldman says about this, you know, number one, in terms of sort of the, what's going on in the neural pathways, um, that it functions really like an addiction. It's an addictive behavior. Mm. And so that's also why you see it get more extreme over time. Right. Right, So the, both of someone's doing it to themselves. And, and I will say like, a lot of offenders that we know about have previous Munchausen behaviors. So you have people like Hope Yabar that go from having a cancer hoax to pretending her daughter has cystic fibrosis and, you know, all of these other things. Whoa. And you have a lot of people who had previous Munchausen behaviors who have preemie babies. Um, there was an offender who spoke to Mark Feldman for his book who talked about how she induced labor early. Um, so you have, you know, these long patterns of behavior mm-hmm. and you definitely see it escalating over time. So that, you know, and it's sort of this very compulsive behavior. And the other thing is it has a high rate of comorbidity or coexistence with those cluster B personality disorders that, you know, I think a lot of people are, are more familiar with these days than they used to be. So borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, which sort of also accounts for some of these other behaviors that you see a lot in these cases that are not specifically related to Munchausen by proxy, but are sort of tied in with the overall theme of deception. So you see like a lot of financial fraud, you see a lot of people lying at work, you see like really rampant infidelity that comes to light, that kind of thing where it's this sort of pattern of pathological lying. So that is what we do know. Uh, that is what we do know about it. I, I can see how, um, like when I think of like my personal, coming back to this idea of like being sick for like that extra day at the end to feel taken care of, um, like when I go to therapy and I talk about the sort of subconscious motivate motivations behind certain behavior traits that I exhibit, there's like this idea that, you know, I didn't receive the love that I wanted or felt like I deserved as a kid. So, you know, like in those moments where you feel like you're really being taken care of by someone who loves you, it is really nice to feel that way. And I could see how, you know, like, a a wire being disconnected in the brain or the way that that functions could just like all of a sudden let that, that dial spin out of control to the point that instead of being this something that you go, Oh, like it'd be nice to feel this way for five or six more hours today as I start to feel better from my cold to like, Oh, I'm now fucking addicted to this feeling and I want this to be my life all the time. When you like, when you, when you, um, I, I, I know we just kind of talked about, the comorbidities, narcissism, uh, borderline personality disorder, various other other things, but like at its root, when we think about this, is, this is coming up to to me because it's it's kind of like a central theme in a couple in a in a show and in a movie that I've seen recently, where where there are characters that they they need to be needed 
Like where 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 actually what happens to them in both in both these cases? One is in Yellow Jackets, Misty's character, yeah, and also in Triangle yeah. of Sadness, um, where uh, there's a character who is sort of like lower on the food chain for whatever reason, whether it's like what their job or whatever their their economic status, or whatever, and then all of a sudden something happens, and in this new environment they find themselves in, they're they're very needed by the community. And they sabotage things to keep this scenario of desperation that everybody is involved in. Everybody wants to, you know, get better, get rescued. And this person in this new environment where they're being needed, their motivation is to keep this turmoil going. Because in this new environment, they they are needed. And it's something that they are experiencing like you said that dial spins out of control they need that well everybody so wants to feel needed and like right. when that's yeah. broken like when you're a kid and you don't get that that feeling sort of satiated for lack of a better term then like i can see how as you grow older if you know again something and and just to clarify like you know the the more quote unquote like normal reaction would hopefully be the like in my situation when i feel sick and i milk it for a few extra hours going okay but like that's you know, like sure for a couple hours, but like, let's not let this get out of control. But if that's yeah. broken and then it just starts to spin out of control, then, then this is yeah, something like this could happen. Yeah. I think those are, those are both really good examples. And I think, yeah, I mean, Brian, to your point, it's why can some people have a drink a few times a week and be yeah. fine and other mm. people that starts this pattern of, you know, really self-destructive behavior. And then, you know, Taylor, to your point, yeah, that control is really thought to be a part of it. You know, my colleague on the committee, Dr. Mary Sanders, who we interview in season one, she's with Stanford and she's worked with, um, she's done the most work really with directly with offenders who are, you know, trying to get treatment to be re- reunified with their family. And that was something I was really interested in exploring. Um, you know, I will say like, a small percentage of of offenders that are going to be able to acknowledge their behavior to the degree where they can get treatment. But I thought that was interesting to talk to her about it. And she did say, she said, you know, that most of the offenders that she sees are really profoundly disempowered women. And so it is a way to sort of get control and it is a controlling behavior, right? Because you're trying to control the situation. You're trying to control the people in your life through manipulation, you know, whether that be the doctors or, you know, people that you're sort of pulling into what is essentially a con. Um, and so it is, you know, it is also a way to sort of like, yeah, it make these sort of, and, and there's a lot of like grandiose language around it. You know, you'll see um, this sort of like, I'm the only person who can take care of my child. I'm the only person who understands their needs. Mm. I had to quit my job to take care of my medically fragile child. And like sort of being like, aren't I the best, like most heroic, most suffering mother? And that's sort of the the form it takes. So that's mm. a really good point also. Wow. To, to your point earlier of like the, of making the comparison to, to, um, uh, MBP and, and addiction uh, that that was just making me think about like how prevalent addiction is in society like addiction you know it's on like a bunch of different levels on a bunch of different levels you know addiction to you name it there's there's like an addiction for something and and a lot of people suffer from a lot of different types of addictions um, how how common is MBP um, is it is it is it is it a rare thing is, is it or is it like extraordinarily common uh that 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 just happens to have like a a spectrum or a level at which it kind of goes overboard i do not think that it is rare and none of the experts that i interviewed think that it is rare 
I wouldn't say common. I would say probably about as common as any other form of child abuse, which just means it's in our communities. You're going to know someone throughout the course of your life who is either a perpetrator or a survivor of it. Um, It's something that we all need to watch out for. That is really my big takeaway from making the first season of this podcast. And um, yeah, I think, you know, the prevailing media narrative, unfortunately, is that it is usually described as extremely rare and there's there's even sort of a real pushback about it being, quote, overdiagnosed. And I will say I read every one of these pieces when I read about people being, quote, falsely accused. And I'm not saying false accusations never happen because, of course, they do with any crime. You're going to see false accusations. And usually what those look like, you know, my colleague B. Yorker told a great story for us for season two the other day of her first case where there was a suspicion because the, the mother had a child that had died previously and just, just her child had an unexplained thing going on. It turned out to be a rare genetic disorder that both children had. And so that, you know, is an example of something that became clear very quickly in the investigation. So when there, you know, there's a suspicion, there's an investigation, it usually becomes very clear very quickly if that's not the case. Um, But I, from talking to all of the experts that I've interviewed, they believe it's under- diagnosed or diagnosed is a strange word, but sort of un, it's it's not being caught. The most mm. people are the system is not knowledgeable about it. Most offenders get away with it. Um, and so I think that it is, you know, underrepresented as something that we know about rather than it's actually rare. And if people were knowledgeable about it and the system was working the way it should, then I think you would see sort of, you know, as Mark Feldman say, you'd see sort of this explosion of cases, not because more people suddenly started abusing their children, but because we caught on to it. And it's very analogous to what we went through in our society about child sex abuse, right? There was a time when that was thought of as like, it's this very rare thing. It's going to be strangers. It's going to be these absolutely, you know, sick individuals rather than this is something that's taking place in our communities. It's family members that are doing it, coaches, priests, like trusted people in the communities. Mm -hmm. It's something that's happening, you know, very close to home. And we've sort of had that reckoning about child sex abuse. And I think Mm -hmm. we need to have it about medical child abuse. Where, Mm -hmm. where are the, when, when, when a, um, when a, an accusation is made, um, I guess the first part of this question would be like, wh- is is that something that's typically made to um, the police uh, or a medical individual, or or is it, um, or and is it, is it, uh, you know, a fa- is it usually coming through a family member saying something just mm. seems off about this whole situation? This person is saying this, I, I, you know, I've spent time with this child and I'm not seeing any of this. This is just isn't lining up. Like where 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 does the ball get rolling when somebody is um, found to be uh, uh, partaking? Doesn't seem to be the right word, but uh, perpetrating um, Munchausen by proxy. Yeah, I mean it. It can really come from anywhere. I mean, certainly doctors are, and and I should say, you know, depending on your state, but in every state in the country, doctors are required by law to report if they have a suspicion of abuse. Okay. Um, and you know, so are anybody else who works with children, right? So preschool teachers, teachers, um, anyone who's working with kids is required by law to report a suspicion of abuse. So that's just straightforward. Um, And, you know, everyone should, right? If you have a suspicion of child abuse, you should report it. 
Um, so a lot of times people only report to CPS. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time talking to Detective Mike Weber, who I'm actually co-writing a book with about three of his cases. Um, he C- is CPS the law is enforcement. Like Child Protection Services? Sorry. So, yes. Yeah, sorry. So see, there's sort of the two entities that should be investigating this abuse simultaneously, and that is the police and the and Child Protective Services, because they do sort of different investigations with different aims. Okay. Um, and it is a criminal offense to medically abuse your child. So it should also be reported to the police. Um, and, you know, those those investigations should be handi- happening in tandem. That doesn't always happen. You know, a lot of times things get reported up the chain at hospitals. You know, all children, all pediatric hospitals have some, you know, kind of um, kind of abuse team that handles, you know, any suspicion of any kind of abuse that that with with children coming through. Um, so often that gets reported to that team first and they may do some kind of, you know, investigation and then report. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, it, it, it sort of it, it can go up the chain both ways, but it, it should it should happen simultaneously. Can, uh, you can, see reports coming from also family members, teachers, sure. just anybody who's really noticing this pattern of like, you know, a lot of times it'll look like, um, you know, like in the in the second case that we're talking about in season two, which is hopefully coming out in May, everyone in this woman's life knew that she was abusing her child Ooh. and they just didn't know what to do about it. They're like, she says she can't eat every time I'm around them. I see this child eating just fine. I see this child looking for food, sneaking food. Um, and yet this, she constantly says that like her child needs a feeding tube. Her child has reflex like this, that, and the other thing, which is a pretty common pattern. And so it's like teachers, you know, teachers report like everyone who was in this child's life. Um, you know, she was very little at the time. She was, only, uh, she was a toddler, but um, like everyone in this child's life, knew something was up and she'd been reported to CPS multiple times before anything happened. Is, is the podcast. Um, so again, folks, the podcast that we're talking about is nobody should believe me. Um, is the show specifically focused on hope and her case? So we framed it around the Hope Yabara case. This mm-hmm. was one that um, I felt a particular connection to because of this, because of two things, I think um, number one, hope also had a fake twin girl pregnancy, which was, as I mentioned, one of the big things in my sister's past that that made us concerned. Um, so that right away sort of stood out to me as a commonality. And then also, you know, just hope was this very, you know, you were talking about, I think something that we always jump to with people who grow up to be perpetrators of abuse is like, oh, was this person abused in their childhood? And that's kind of why they're doing this. And um, and with Hope, you know, she really, by all accounts, had a very loving family. Mm. You know, she was married. She had these three beautiful children. She was really successful in her career. So not someone who looks outwardly disempowered at all, right? Someone who really looks like they have they have a very full and complete life where they're loved by a lot of people. And so I think that, and that also reminded me of my sister because she's very smart, very capable. And, you know, to my mind, I don't know what her experiences of it, but, you know, it seemed to me like, I mean, I, my parents are very loving and, you know, certainly wasn't deprived. And so I think those commonalities really made me connect with that case. And so we start off talking about Hope's case. You know, we, we talked to experts. We talked to, again, the detective, Mike Weber, who who investigated that case. And I talked to Hope's whole family, her um, two of her siblings, her dad, her ex-husband. Um, and then at the the very last episode is me interviewing Hope um, in mm, between, uh, which oh, wow. was fascinating. Yeah. In between those, those sort of bookends, we also, we go down, you know, a bunch of trails and we talk to some other people about their personal experiences. We interview a lot of experts. So it's sort of a, it's like a deep dive into the topic by yeah. Wolf that case yeah, right. without, without I giving her, away um I, I remember her case like i i, yeah. I remember seeing oh, uh, seeing like articles and and there, there might have been like a couple of reddit videos that popped up 
Uh, what, what was the timeline of her case? Oh, um, I want to say she went to prison in probably like mm, 2000, around 2010. Yeah, so it was right. around okay. that time that it would have been in the media. Okay, yeah. yeah. Without giving away too much, like what was it like having a conversation with her? It was fascinating. It took a lot of back and forth to do it. She was, or she said she was, I have to frame everything is what she said because mm -hmm. hope is known for being deceptive. I mean, it's very interesting to sit down with someone that you know, you know they're going to lie to you. That's just, that's what they do. Um, and actually that's where the title comes from. In a, She did a few interviews from prison and one of the things she said, you know, someone asked her, they said, Hope, you know, you've lied about all of these things. Why should we believe anything that you're saying now? And she said, you shouldn't. Nobody mm -hmm. should believe me. And I was like, that is the truest thing she's yeah. ever said in her life. So we ended up flying out to Idaho and, you know, after all this back and forth and she canceled the last minute and then she said she'd do it. And we said, okay, you know, just all of this back and forth, the drama, there always has to be drama, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we flew out there. I met her in this little cafe in this tiny town where she lives. And, you know, it, I think that the most terrifying thing about hope is that she doesn't seem terrifying at all. She just seems like yeah. mom next door, you know, regular sweet middle-aged lady that just, you know, I mean, just seems she doesn't, she seems very normal. Um, you know, if I didn't know the backstory, I would just think like, what a, what a nice warm sweet sure. lady. Um, yeah. and that's, and that's what, what allowed her to be able to pull it off for so long. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. There yeah. seems to be like such a, and t tell me if I'm, if I'm thinking about this uh, incorrectly, but like, I know that there is a, a ton of mental health crossover in a lot of crimes, like uh, pr probably way more than I know or can even begin to understand. Um, but there seems to be almost like the lines seem to be almost extra blurred in this, in, in this particular, um, in Munchausen by proxy, like, or Munchausen or Munchausen by proxy. Like it just seems like there is such a blurry line between this being just like a mental health crisis that somebody is having. And, and I, and I, and I, like I want to be able, I know that it's, that it's a crime and that you are harming a, a person. I know that, that that's horrific and that should be the, that should be the focus. But well, yeah, like, yeah. Like what, how do you, how do you take yeah, that? Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I, I, I see what you're getting at. And I think it goes to back to that question of like, should we consider this an illness or should we consider it a crime? And I think part of the murkiness comes from the fact that we do not want to think of nice mom next door ladies as being capable of the most horrific behavior mm -hmm. we can possibly think of. There is just an innate resistance to that. And you see it play out in these cases. Um, we do not like to think of women as criminals to begin with. Um, mm. But I think the relationship between 
Munchausen by proxy or factitious disorder imposed on another, the DSM, you know, diagnosis for this behavior, um, and medical child abuse, the act of harming a child by over-medicalizing them purposefully, is the exact same relationship as pedophilic disorder and child sex abuse. And that right. is how we have to think of it. Hmm. Does that mean that we don't have to have any empathy for the individual and that we shouldn't attempt to give them treatment? No, I don't think so. But hmm. I I also think we have to hold in our minds always that this is happening to children and that this is the deadliest form of child abuse. That is one of the things that we know wow. about it. And so, you know, I think, unfortunately, the way this plays out, especially in family court, because, again, sometimes, you know, or in a lot of cases, the police are not involved. It is a CPS investigation and just goes to family court. Um, you know, and family court is not very knowledgeable about this issue. And so they look at someone and they think, oh, this looks, this appears like a loving mother. They are taking their kid to the doctor all the time. So they must be really, you know, like they're not mm -hmm. neglecting their child. Um, and they just make a determination based on that. And you have things like they'll bring in um, a psychiatrist to do an evaluation to see if this person, quote, has Munchausen by proxy. That is not how you figure out whether this crime has happened. The only way you can determine whether this crime has happened is a full review of the medical records. Um, which that is one of the big stumbling blocks in these places, because as you can imagine, I mean, right. because they're taking their kids to the doctor all the time, a lot of times at different hospitals, you're talking about tens of thousands of pages of medical record reviews that have to be looked through. Wow. In, in your in your sister's situation, um, she, like the two times that she was investigated and not found to be guilty of this, does that mean that she's, but does she still have Munchausen by proxy? Like, it, like, I, can right. you remove the like the like charge of Munchausen by proxy from the actual like diagnosis in that sense? And how do you like how do you kind of come to terms with that? I mean, so I will say in my sister's case, the way that I would like to frame it is that she has not been charged with the crime. Mm -hmm. The state did file for dependency, which meaning to have her children taken away. They filed for dependency in the second case with her daughter and a family court judge dismissed that. Um the criminal investigation continued for about six or eight months after that. Um, and then no charges were filed. So, you know, that that's the correct Ooh. language to yeah. use. And yeah. I, I even think sort of this idea of like someone being diagnosed, you don't need to diagnose someone with a mental illness. That person's mental health is not, you know, because the only time a person's mental health really plays into whether or not they are guilty of a crime is if they are suffering delusions, right? Sort of an insanity plea. And that's not what this is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people who engage in Munchausen by proxy behaviors understand what they're doing. They understand right from wrong. And again, characterized by intentional mm -hmm. deception. Mm -hmm. So the mental health diagnosis is not relevant. It's relevant maybe to our understanding of the issue overall, but in terms of like custody, criminal culpability, it's not relevant. Mm -hmm. It's whether or not they committed this abuse and whether or not the experts have determined they committed this abuse. Yeah. I, right. I, I think you're, I, I just want to, I, I appreciated your, your connection there with, um, with pedophilia, because that was one of the things yeah. that we talked about really like in the first year Pretty or so on. Yeah. that we started the podcast, um, where, um, where we talked to, um, uh, James a, Cantor, a, a, a James Cantor is yeah. a sexual psychologist, possibly a psychiatrist. I can't remember now. Um, and and he really enlightened us on like the, the the sort of the spectrum of that and the difference between between 
sexual abuse and pedophilia, and that there's obviously crossover, but they are but they can be they can be exclusive from each other. And just to think about it in that way mm. um, was really was really helpful. So I appreciated the way that you uh, drew that connection there. Mm. One thing that I just want some just just to get a bit of a like clarification on I, you you had um, something you had said earlier. You had, you'd mentioned that th- that this is like considered one of the most one of the deadliest forms of of abuse, uh, <laughs> a ch- child child abuse. Is that the way you worded it? Um, yes. Is is that uh, is that what is it that makes it deadly? It, like, are, is it because of it, it's making me think of like the sixth sense um, where, you know, you got the girl under the bed and she slides the box and it's like you find it. Her, her mother had Munchausen by proxy and she was poisoning her daughter and then her daughter died. Wow, and that's great how she memory. became a ghost. When was the last time you saw the sixth sense? Uh, I don't know. A couple of like Halloween's ago. Um, and uh, so, so we, like, are we talking like that? Is it like poisoning? Is that, is that why it's well, so deadly? Yeah, like, what, I mean, what, what makes it so deadly? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's when you sort of cross over to, and again, the behavior does exist on the spectrum, although we should always, you know, keep in mind that it's all damaging, right? Because I know, uh, you know, I work with a group of survivors and the psychological damage from this is mm-hmm. lifelong, even if physically they are fine or they discover in their 20s that they're fine after being told they were going to die imminently. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the methods where you see child death... Um, they're sort of the, it's the induction. It's when people are really trying to induce illness, right? So poisoning mm-hmm. is one, mm-hmm. um, you know, suffocation is another that comes up. You see a lot of, you know, a lot of these cases where they're saying, oh, my child has all these breathing issues. And then it turns oh out God. to be, you know, suffocation. Um, and then, um, you know, the, the Hope Yabara case, um, you know, one of the things she did was take blood out of her daughter, um, which is horrifying, obviously. Um, so, I mean, you you see just, it's that, again, that escalation of the behavior. And a lot of experts I've talked to think that, you know, a lot of these cases where the child does die, it's more because of a miscalculation than an actual intention to right. kill the child. Right. Um, you know, like there was another one that, another famous case is the Lacey Spears case. Sorry, my dog is just- <laughs> That's okay. So That's okay. Oliver, come here. That's okay. I love dogs. You can come up in the podcast. Oh, oh, um, this is my this is my elderly three legged oh. um, miniature pincher. Oh my god, so, bud, um, hi, buddy. Um, yes, he got his leg kicked off by a horse. Unfortunately, oh, oh my god, what a way! What a way to get your leg. He's been through a life. I mean, he's right. he's kind of a you know he's he's kind of unsinkable this guy um but anyways yeah so the um the Lacey Spears case that was another that was a case of salt poisoning um so yeah I mean you do it is it's a it's a dangerous behavior um so I think that's the thing that we all have to keep in mind is really at stake and so again I don't think it's wrong to have empathy for perpetrators and to try and understand why they do this and I think if we don't try and explore why we do why people do this. Then we don't have happening. any hope of yeah. yeah. We don't have any hope of ever sort of intervening in a helpful way. Is I, it, is it hard for survivors to like be identified? I I imagine I'm I'm thinking of like a somebody who's who grows up who's been told you know by um their mom that they're sick their entire life and then they just become they just believe that and and like at at what point like how do we how do we shine more light on this to like to show those people that maybe perhaps they've been through an experience like this, because I imagine that like if my mom told me I was sick my entire life, I would just believe her. And then I would believe that. And I yeah, would find that if somebody came to me, it. 
and said like yeah. that's not true i would find it hard to believe i mean now else, that i think about it i've never actually technically been tested for cf <laughs> since <laughs> i like in my memory uh but oh, gosh i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm just gonna go with the fact that i have it <laughs> I, mean, like, I, I mean also I like, il- like illness like you ca- my my wife was sick last weekend and i spent the i spent a week uh like uh, like 10 days ago and i spent the the following week with any little sensation yeah. that was not uh, me at a like absolute peak feeling. Oh yeah, I mean, dude, I, think I, about COVID. I spent it analyzing oh, yeah. it whether like, I'm sick. Think, think about the time yeah. we spent during COVID. Like, yeah. I mean, you wake up and you're like, oh, I, I had like a little bit of phlegm in in the back of my nose and it fell down into my throat. I'm I've got COVID. Yeah. I got COVID. That's it. Yeah, you know. It's like, well, it's I I think alarm. that's it's a really good point. I mean, yes, and we did we are sort of all and COVID has had had an impact on this for sure. But I think you know most of the survivors I've talked to did not have the revelation that they'd been abused until they were in their 20s. And it was usually when they were able to get some distance from their mother, when they were able to move out of the house, go to college, or for some other reason. Um, And, you know, it usually, like, everyone kind of comes to it a different way. Joe, who works with me at Munchausen Support, they have a fascinating story. And they realized when they were sitting in a college classroom in a psychiatry class or excuse me, a psychology class where they talked about it and they had this sudden rush of memories and realized that this had happened to them and then were able to get a hold of their medical records and went through them and realized that multiple doctors had made this note and sort of, again, everyone was on to their mother and no one could figure out how to intervene. And so it does often happen in that way where it's like something clicks and then it all sort of comes rushing back and then they're left to put you know the survivors are left to kind of piece back together their life story because all of a sudden they realize everything in their life from the time they were an infant often has been a lie it's it is like it is absolutely fascinating like especially if you if you if you think on if you think about yourself as a child and you know i remember going to the doctor for whatever thing and you know, and I had a heart thing and mm-hmm. I went away and I mean, how, how, how damaging and shocking that would be if I were to realize, or if anybody was to realize that that thing that you remember was just fake yeah. I, I, and, yeah. and, and for what reason and, and for, and to, and I think it's like, like when, when somebody, when, when a survivor has that revelation what what is your in your experience with with speaking to people like what is what is the uh what is the aftermath of that in terms of them talking to their parent and 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 facing that with them because obviously if you realize that that's happened to you i mean that is going to just like completely shatter the foundation mm-hmm. of a relationship like how how what's yeah. the what happens there it's really complicated. So, you know, a lot of stories that I've heard, first of all, most people who commit this will never take accountability. So right. it's course. not a situation where you confront the parent about that behavior and they go, oh, I did it. I'm sorry. You know, no, they just deny forever. Right. I was the best mother ever. I took care of you. I was the, you know, look at all I've sacrificed for you. How could you accuse me of doing this, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, obviously they feel a huge amount of betrayal, both at their parent who abused them, oftentimes at their father who either, you know, in some cases, fathers stand by and support the the mother um, in that behavior and sort of don't intervene. Um, or, you know, if the father does catch on and gets cut out of the child's life, that happens too. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And they just really have to like retrace their steps. And and a lot of times they also have other family members that got cut off or other people that got cut off that they're sort of now reexamining those relationships. So it's incredibly complicated. And just to really sort of reassert their identity as a healthy person, um, you know, it takes a lot. And I've been, you know, a lot of the survivors I know are really struggling, but I also just have witnessed just incredible resilience. And so I'm... I'm hopeful in in that regard, but I think we do have to keep in mind, like, this is something that has, I mean, just profound effects, profound mm. effects on someone, lifelong, even yeah. again, if they make it out sort of physically unscathed. It, it, are they typically, like, survivors, would they be typically diagnosed with something like complex PTSD? That is one of the diagnoses. Um, yes. And certainly that is present. I think, um, you know, one of the things there's not a lot known about survivors. It's not a population that's been studied. And so I would like to see that happen. We're certainly learning, you know, another a, a colleague, um, a committee colleague of mine is working with me on these survivor support groups. And again, Joe, who I mentioned, who is a survivor themselves. Um, but we we have a lot to learn about survivors. And I think they do. They this come. PTSD, yes, but also, you know, some really specific things around medical trauma and, you know, they're sort of not knowing if they're sick and, and being sort of overvigilant about their health, like that example you gave, Taylor. Um, and I'm so sorry, you guys. I could talk to you guys for like another hour. I do have to go in a couple of minutes here because I have another interview right after us, unfortunately. Then uh, <laughs> for just, I guess, like one last question, which, which you know, one of the things you said earlier, which is that like you will likely know someone who's been through this in your lifetime that really kind of like blew my mind. Um, what are some of the, what are some of the, like the warning signs of, of this and, and like, what are some things that people can like keep an eye out for to ensure that they don't, you know, um, that if this is happening around them, that they, maybe they can pinpoint it. Yeah. So, um, thank you. Yeah. I, I would love it if we could put in the show notes. I actually have, um, a great, sort of list of, yeah. you know, um, from the, the APSAC from that committee that I'm on of, of sort of guidelines around and warning signs. And those are for professionals. They're also just for people who are, especially if, you know, if you have kids yourself, if you're around kids, um, I think, you know, what it comes down to is, uh, I think often it is a gut feeling, right? Mm. It's a gut feeling that something is wrong and it shouldn't be ignored. If you have an intuition that, a child is being abused. You shouldn't ignore it. You should report it. That's uncomfortable. Might cause you some serious backlash. But I think we always have to remember what's at stake here, which is these kids' health, well-being, and in some cases, their lives. And so I think, you know, if you, you know, and I, I don't, it's it's hard to put warning signs on it. Again, I want to share that document from APSAC because that's the, those are the clinical guidelines that's put together by, by my professional colleagues. And one thing I want to be, you know, sure of is to say always is that like many parents obviously have legitimately sick kids, you know, Jeremy, I know you have CF, like it, mm-hmm. and it's not, you know, I don't want to sort of like put a lens on people that have legitimately sick children and make them look somehow suspicious. Like that is not this, the the behavior looks totally different. It is not one diagnosis. It's every diagnosis all the time. It's something different with every kid. It's this sort of pattern of behavior. And again, characterized by intentional deception. So not a parent that maybe overshares a little bit, not just a parent that maybe overshares a little bit on social media, but someone that is posting all the time, posting pictures of their kid in the hospital, posting pictures of procedures. We see this a lot just sort of that, you know, which again, that goes to that gut feeling, right? People seeing this just goes, oh, this feels off. You know, this feels off. 
I feel like this person tells me a different story every time they talk about their kids' illnesses. I feel like they can't talk about anything but their kids' illnesses. You know, those are those are kind of some of the warning signs. And I always point out to people, it's not your job to do the investigation. You don't need to come forward with proof. If you have a suspicion, you report the suspicion. And that is what is the police and CPS's job to look into. Mm. And it will never be just one report. It'll never be just one report from a doctor. It'll never be just one report for a family member. There's always, in these cases where abuse is happening, there's always just like so much more going on behind the scenes. Mm. Well, Andrea, this has been a super eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and chat with us. Um, Folks, again, the podcast, Nobody Should Believe Me. Season one is out now. Go take a listen. Uh, I mean, it sounds like it's amazing. I can't wait to dig dig my uh, teeth yeah, into too. it. And then uh, also the book, uh, your latest book, uh, Women Are the Fiercest Creatures, is out on March 7th of this year. So uh, go get your copies. Andrea, thank you so much. This has been a real treat. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is a great conversation. I really appreciate it. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.